the gospel according to Mark. And this morning we're only going to be looking at one verse. Um, What I want to do this morning is give us an introduction to this gospel account. I want us to understand the background of it so that next week when we get into the, uh, the meat, I want us to have that perspective in the back of our minds as we look at this text uh, and how this text came to be. So uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Pretty simple, right? Had a quick question for you before we get started. When you hear the term authority, what comes to your mind? When you hear the term authority, what comes to your mind? You typically have many different things that come into your mind as you hear that word, probably depending upon your life experience. You may have some good examples of those who have had authority in your life. You may have some not so good examples. Um, I don't know about you, but I try to avoid authority whenever I can because I realize with authority comes responsibility. And with responsibility usually comes problems, right? Uh, And so I get a little nervous when I find people wanting to get authority. I think that there's usually, what's the motive there that they want this authority so bad? Uh, Human history tells us that man does not do well with authority, does it? Whether it be giving authority or whether it be receiving authority, uh, we have a problem with authority. And I like the famous quote by Lord Action. He said, uh, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Have you heard that before? In fact, he goes on to say this, though. He says, great men are almost always bad men. Hmm. Interesting. Great men are almost always bad men. That could be true. Uh, However, Mark's gospel is an account of the most powerful man to ever walk this planet, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we'll see is that his authority is noted above and beyond all others. We will see that with authority, he is able to command unclean spirits He taught as one with authority, and that is opposed to the religious leaders of his day who used to speak, and they would always quote the religious experts to try to validate the points that they were making, similar to if you went to a seminary or a Bible college and you were writing a paper, you're supposed to always back up what you're saying with the authorities, with uh, people who have the degrees and everything else. And so the, the rabbis would go and they would say something very timidly, and this is because rabbis by so-and-so says this. But when Jesus came on the scene, what did he say? He said, you have heard that it is said, but I say to you. And so Jesus was showing the people that he was the authority. The same person who spoke the world into existence was speaking to them in those synagogues nearly 2,000 years ago. And so he taught as one with authority. He also has authority to forgive sin. And we understand the only person who really ultimately has that authority is God himself, right? So what does that say about Jesus? If he alone has authority to forgive sin. He also, when he speaks, we'll see that he often commands those that he's speaking to. Many times it says Jesus commanded so and so. And so we understand when Jesus speaks, he means what he says. He says what he means. He, he doesn't give us wiggle room, right? Do you ever read Jesus' words and feel a little bit uncomfortable? Because he says things very directly to the point. Sometimes we kind of want to water down the words that he speaks because his words pack a punch and they don't allow us to walk on the fence one way or the other. He doesn't allow us to do that, right? Either you're warm or you're cold. You can't be lukewarm when it comes to Jesus. 
And so he commands things. He speaks to us in direct language that doesn't allow us room for interpretation at times, even though we want to try to reinterpret it to make it easier on ourselves. We will also witness many people's response to his authority. The crowds will be, will be amazed by his authority. The demons are terrified by it. The religious leaders are offended at it and in opposition to it. But ultimately, we will witness nearly all things subject to Jesus. We will see that sickness and disease are subject to his authority. Demons are subject to his authority. The wind, the waves, the sea is subject to his authority. In fact, even death itself has to answer to him. Yet there is one thing recorded in this gospel that is not always subject to his authority. You want to know what that is? The human heart. Isn't that something? The human heart. In fact, Jesus himself will even know what's in people's hearts. He will know what people are thinking. And yet, even his authority and his power, he has given us the freedom to choose what we do with him. It's incredible, right? The, 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 the impact of the freedom of our will that God has given us to either accept or reject him as who he claims to be. And in this verse 1 here, it says he's the son of God. But again, that goes back to our own hearts. Who is Jesus Christ? See, this is what it all boils down to. Jesus will pose two questions to his disciples in Mark. Number one, who do the people say that I am? And do you remember the, the disciples' response? Well, you know, some think that you're John the Baptist, meaning that he would have been resurrected because, remember, Herod had him beheaded. And so Herod himself thought when he heard of Jesus that it might be John the Baptist resurrected, coming to get him. And they witnessed something in Jesus that was, that was conducive to John's ministry. Other people thought that he was the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah, we know, didn't die. He was carried into the heavens in the flaming chariot of fire. And so maybe it was Elijah come back or just the prophet or one of the prophets. He, maybe he was Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as they saw them weeping over Jerusalem. Who do men say that I am? I guarantee you, if we were to go out on the streets of Cumberland with a survey and we ask people, who is Jesus Christ? I promise you, we would get many very interesting answers. Some people would say he was a good teacher. You ever hear people refer to him as a good teacher? Or a good moralist or a moral teacher. Uh, some people would take a little bit more of the interesting side and say he was a revolutionary. He came to overthrow the structure of things in this world. Or he was a miracle worker. But how many of us realize that we can't stay there with who do people say that he is? Because what was the second question that Jesus asked the disciples? He didn't stop there. and just He wasn't just concerned about what others thought about him. He went directly to the source and he said, but who do you say that I am? And that is the question that every single one of us will face as we study the gospel according to Mark. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he to you? And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who your spouse says that he is, who your children says that he is, who your parents say that he is. The question is, who do you say that he is? Because that is the looming question that all of us, I pray, as we open up the scriptures, that's the question that's answered before our eyes. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Now, in the gospel account, 
we will see that Jesus will reveal himself to the disciples more and more and more and more as the gospel unfolds. In fact, he will bring three of these guys up on the Mount of Transfiguration where they will behold literally his glory, right? The inward glory of Jesus Christ will be manifested outward to Peter, James, and John, and they will behold his glory. Amazing. And yet they still seem to have no clue in many ways, about who he is. Now, Peter will make the right distinction, saying, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He will get it right, but then we'll see very very much after that, what does he do? He rebukes Jesus. At which point, Jesus has to tell him, get behind me, Satan, right? And so even though Peter has a head knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, even though the Father has revealed that much to the disciples, they're lost, by and large. They watch him calm the sea. And what are they? They're terrified. They see him casting out demons and they're, 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 they're puzzled. They're, they, he begins in the second half of the gospel narrative to tell them about his impending death and resurrection. You think they understand that? No. They don't get it. Who was Jesus Christ? And so things puzzled his followers. And it wasn't only his actual authority, but rather it was how he chose to use his authority, right? Now let's take a step back for a second and think about this for a minute. How would you use the kind of authority that Jesus possesses? If you could control the elements, how would you do that? With winter approaching, how many here would say no snow for the rest of winter? No ice. Some people like snow, I know that. I don't like to drive in it. But if you could control the elements, would you? If you can control the spirit world, and you had that kind of power and authority, if people were amazed at hearing you speak, you could go and you could capture an audience and you could speak with this kind of authority that Jesus spoke with. Or you could heal every single person that came to you who was sick. Wouldn't that be something? You could go into the hospital or the nursing homes, or you could go to your loved ones. You will see that Jesus is going to go to Peter's mother-in-law and heal her. If you could heal people on the spot, what would you do with that power? Imagine the people flocking to you. Imagine the attention that you would garner. If you could raise the dead, would you? But here's the one that's sort of a kicker for me. If you could discern people's thoughts, if you had that kind of power, you know, in the early 2000s, I remember there was a movie called uh, What Women Want. It starred Mel Gibson, where he's this male chauvinistic pig. He's uh, a corporate executive kind of guy. And he treats women like garbage. And he thinks that he's everything. And so I think he ends up getting electrocuted Uh, somehow, and all of a sudden he has this incredible power to discern women's thoughts. Not men's, just women's for whatever reason. And I remember him going into his workplace or into a store, and you just hear all these women, female voices. But what he finds out is that no woman really thinks very highly of him because of the way that he's treated women in the past. And so it's just a comic uh, way of looking at the fact of what would life be like if you could hear what people think. I I don't think I want that power, to be honest with you. I I don't think that would be beneficial for me in many different levels. But what would you do with the kind of authority that Jesus possesses? And notice I say possesses. I didn't say possessed, right? Because we realize he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always possessed these things. 
Yet there were some limitations that he took upon when he took on human flesh and blood. We know the people that Jesus ministered to as well as the people who were reading this epistle uh, in Mark's day understood authority and they understood the abuse of it because they were under the thumb of Roman authority. And Roman authority stamped out any kind of rebellion. If you were rebellious, there was a cross waiting for you if you were not a Roman citizen or there was some form of punishment to bring about peace at all costs. And so these people understood authority. They understood, in fact, remember Jesus himself said that the Gentiles, what do they do with that authority that they have? They lord it over you. And maybe some of us in this uh, room here this morning have had people with authority who have lorded it over us. That's not very fun, is it? When someone who has maybe a say in your life and they use that say for their purposes rather than for your good. And so Jesus acknowledged that the Gentiles lord it over others. And yet, what did Jesus do with his authority? If you're taking notes, if I had to give you one verse that I think summarizes this entire gospel account, it would be Mark 10.45. Mark 10.45 says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And so Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, he did not come in all pomp, right? We saw that as we celebrated Christmas together. He came lowly in a manger where there was no room for him in the inn. He, he came to a poor family. He worked with his hands uh, throughout his young life as he worked as a carpenter or, a, or a, a, literally he, it was a tecton. He worked with his hands, uh, maybe even with stone. He was a laborer. And so he did not come with all of that pomp and glory. But he used his authority to serve others. To the point of what? What do we see in Philippians chapter 2? Even the death on the cross. That he gave his life a ransom for many. That his service would end up costing him his very life. That's, that's costly service, right? I mean, that's the kind of service that we, we, we celebrate lives even with our veterans who, who give of their lives for the sake of others. And yet we have a Savior who was totally innocent, who gave his life a ransom for many. He used his authority to serve us. Now, that's why you often hear, when you hear people referring to the Gospel of Mark, you'll hear people refer to him as the Gospel of Jesus the Servant. And that's true. He came to serve. But here's the thing that I don't want us to miss with that. If we just see him as the servant, then we miss the fact of his authority that will be all throughout this gospel account. You see, what makes his being a servant so amazing to me is his authority. How many people do you know with major authority who are there to use that authority to serve others? You have the man who has all authority given to him and what does he do? He girds himself. He takes up a towel and he washes his disciples' feet, the work of a slave. That's the God that we serve. That's the heart of our Father demonstrated to us through the Son. Please understand, it's the heart of the Father just as much as it's the heart of the Son, right? Because the Son's fulfilling everything that he does. And Mark is very concerned about what Jesus does, even more so than what he says. He records what he does, and what he does is in total alignment and fulfillment with his heavenly Father. 
And so he's more than just a servant. It's a servant with the ultimate authority, right? He throws the ways of the world upside down and he calls those who follow him to do the same. And so he tells us the greatest in the kingdom will be everyone else's servant. Literally, he says, you'll be a slave to everyone if you want to be the greatest in his kingdom because his kingdom is the opposite to the kingdom of this world. Whoever desires to be first will be last. And whoever's last will be first. I really believe with all my heart in heaven when we are there and we receive, you know, his, uh, his judgment for rewards, I really believe that you're going to see so many no-name no Christians who faithfully serve their Lord, who no one knew about. You know, I, I remember reading Spurgeon and him attributing his success to the people who prayed for him as a pastor. Everyone know Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. If you ever read anything that he wrote, it's just, it's a feast. And yet he attributed his success to the people who prayed for him and his ministry. How many people who never are on Christianity Today's front page, who never stand in front of a people at a pulpit, are going to be rewarded? Why? Because they understand that the last will be first. That we're not in this thing to try to make our name great, right? What does he tell us in verse 1? Who's this gospel account about? It's about Christ. And so if you want your life to count on this side of eternity, the more you serve the Lord and you serve others, that's the treasure that you will store up because that's the way of his kingdom. It's an upside down kingdom from this world. Now we will see who should have known his identity will actually miss out on Jesus. And those who should have been ignorant of him will actually find him. Insiders will become outsiders and outsiders will become insiders. Why? Because he chooses the foolish and he chooses the weak and the beggarly and the things that this world wants to just toss aside. That's who he chooses. And isn't that true? I, I can't speak for you, but I can speak of myself. And I'm so thankful that the Lord chooses foolish things to confound the wise. I'm so thankful that he reveals himself to babes, to simple people, to people who understand that they don't have it all together, that, that, they, that they're sinners ultimately, that they need a savior because only the sick need a physician. Now, who is the author of this gospel account? Uh, I think he probably gave it away in the name of the book, right? It's the gospel according to Mark. Uh, in, the, in the scriptures, his full name is John Mark. And he is possibly the young man who fled away naked at Gethsemane. And that's recorded in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verses 51 and 52. Uh, Mark is the only one of the four gospels that records that event. Jesus is arrested at Gethsemane. And you see this young man who just has a cloth on. And he flees away naked from the scene. Was it John Mark? Could be. Many scholars believe that it was. Uh, we do know about him that he's from Jerusalem. He's Jewish. And his mother, Mary, had a very large house where the early church would meet. Now, perhaps her place was where the Last Supper occurred. We don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I tend to believe that it was for a couple reasons. I think, number one, 
the fact that if it was John Mark who fled Gethsemane, it would make sense that it was at her house because he would have been there. And therefore, when Jesus and the disciples sang a couple hymns and they departed and Jesus goes to Gethsemane, it would make sense that John Mark would have tugged along with them that night if he was indeed in their house. Um, and so I do believe that. Number two, we see the early church meeting in their house. Remember when Peter was imprisoned? He's on death row. He's ready to be executed. And the angel of the Lord goes and he releases Peter from jail. What were those Christians doing at the time? Were they protesting Caesar? Did they have pickets in the streets saying, free Peter, free Peter? No, they were praying. And they were praying in this house that belonged to Mary, John Mark's mother. And if you recall the incident, Peter's released. He goes, knocks on the door, and little Rhoda opens the door. She's so excited to see Peter. What does she do? She slams the door right on Peter's face, goes and tells people, people that he's at the door, and they don't even believe her. Here they had been praying for his release. She tells them that he's there at the door, and they don't even believe her. Uh, you know, it, it just, it, it's encouraging to me because I realize, you know what, maybe their faith is kind of similar to my faith. Maybe I'm like that, man, that father who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You ever struggle with faith? You ever struggle to trust the Lord at times? You know, there are times when your faith is soaring, you're trusting the Lord, and then there's other times where you take your eyes off of him and you're struggling. You're trying to remember his faithfulness, and maybe you're in that battle this morning. But either way, the church was very familiar with this young man, John Mark. They met in his house. Uh, we also see that uh, John Mark would have therefore grown up with this early church. He was there. He was, I don't know how old he was, probably a teenager, but he was there witnessing the prayer of the saints. Wouldn't that have been amazing? Do you ever put yourself in, in the shoes of the early Christians and think, wouldn't it have been amazing to hear those disciples preach? To hear Peter at Pentecost? To, to witness what the early church looked like. I always wonder about that. What did it look like when they gathered together? What did Pentecost look like when the Spirit of God was poured out onto the early believers? What did their meetings look like practically? I mean, we have little tidbits of what it looked like when they gathered together. We know from Acts that they were in the Word, they were in prayer, they were in fellowship, they had these love feasts, they had communion with one another. But what was it like to be there in those early days when the church was being birthed, the Spirit of God being poured out, people being healed, the, the, the gospel going forth into the nations? Now we see when Paul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem to deliver the collection for the poor saints, they see the potential in this young man. Perhaps he was even commended by Peter. And they bring him back to Antioch with them. And this is all recorded in the book of Acts. In fact, John Mark will go with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. However, things don't go so well for John Mark because he quits on them in Perga for unknown reasons. We don't know why. He just, he left them. But the scripture doesn't tell us why. Was he homesick for Jerusalem? Was he afraid of the impact of what was going to happen or the resistance that they might face? Did he not like the fact that Paul was in charge when, when Barnabas was his uncle? Or did he not like that the gospel was starting to go to the Gentiles? Was he a New Testament Jonah? We don't know. Scripture is silent on why he left them. But we do know that Paul took offense of it. That Paul was not pleased that John Mark had left the ministry. He left the work to go back to Jerusalem. 
And when it came time for their second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to bring John Mark with them, but Paul refuses. In fact, it got so ugly that there's a division between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas takes John Mark with him, and I go to Cyprus, and, and Paul takes Silas with him. And I believe the Lord in his sovereignty uses that split to actually further the gospel, to get the gospel to go in different directions. But nevertheless, John Mark was the source of a division between Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas is the encourager. He's the guy that gets along with everyone. And yet it causes division between the two. Now, here's the thing that I love about this story, though. Even though Paul was done with John Mark, God wasn't. Isn't that good news? See, I can put myself in Paul's shoes in that story. And I can be in a position where I need someone and they bail on me. And I can understand Paul's desire to not work with this guy ever again. Because I can't trust him. When things get difficult, I, I don't know if he has my back. I don't know if he's on our team, so to speak. But I'm so thankful for the grace of God that the Lord was willing to take someone who abandoned ship, so to speak, and he was willing to use him again. He uses him with Barnabas, and guess what? He uses him to write down his holy word. He uses an unfaithful servant to testify of the faithful servant. Isn't that good news? That no matter, maybe, maybe we feel like we've blown it in our walk with the Lord. Where we've, we've failed him. And I feel like the Lord can never use me ever again. You know, I, I've gone too far. I've blown it. And yet, the, the Lord has a track record of restoring people, doesn't he? Because that's the Lord's desire. Restoration. Even in a church, when you have division, or let's say, for example, you have church discipline, and someone is in such blatant sin, they refuse to repent, and let's say that the church tells that person they have to leave until they're willing to repent. You realize the heart of the church should always be reconciliation? That when that person repents and comes back, there should be a celebration as there was with the prodigal son? God forbid that we would ever be like the older brother and the prodigal son, right? God forbid that when people blow it, and people are going to blow it in the church, right? You realize that by now? We're going to fail one another. People are going to not keep their word. They're going to do things that maybe harm you or say things, or they're going to leave. When, 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 what are, where are they? Pray, I pray to the Lord that we would never be like that older brother and judge the repentant one who comes back to, into the fold. Why? The heart of the father. Isn't it the heart of the father that's demonstrated in the prodigal son? What does the father do? Does he just stand there and and wait on the son to come back to him? No, he does something that was culturally unacceptable as a man. He picks up his robe and he runs to the son. That was not something that a distinguished man does in that culture. Men don't run. And yet the love of the Father embraces the wayward Son. That's the God that we serve. That's the gospel that Mark is writing to us about. And you know what? I think it was personal for him. I can only imagine. I don't think he understood what he was doing when he wrote this letter. I don't think that he would know that in 2,000 years we would be studying this book, realizing that this is Holy Scripture. I don't know. I think he was moved by the Holy Spirit, right? Because that's what the Scripture tells us. 
I know he was inspired by the Spirit of God to pen these words, but I don't know that he understood the impact that these words would have, not just on the church that he was writing to, but in all the saints throughout history. But here's the, here's the point of it all. Mark does not name his name at all in this letter. He doesn't tell us this is a gospel according to Mark. We've added that. Rather, who's this gospel account about? It's about Jesus, right? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the gospel of Mark. But how thankful I am that God does not give up on us. And here's some good news, by the way. Paul will not give up on him either. Because we do read in Colossians 4.10 that he commends John Mark later on. Also in Philemon 24. And at the end of Paul's life, when he's in jail... He actually asked Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11 to send John Mark. Why? Because he was useful for me in the ministry. And so something happened. God brought these two men back. They reconcile. And God actually brings, just brings their hearts together. So that at the end of Paul's life, he says, you know what? John Mark, yeah, he's useful for the ministry. He doesn't even mention the previous thing. I like that. He doesn't say, well, he used to be unfaithful, now he's grown. No, he's useful for me in the ministry. He's proven through time now to be faithful, to have a good track record. Now, just a little bit more about the letter. Since John Mark was most likely not an eyewitness to all the events recorded in the gospel account, here's the question. Where did he get this information from? Now, again, we know he was led by the Holy Spirit, but church history actually reveals to us that he was very close to Peter. Um, and frequently, we are told that he heard Peter preach, he interpreted for Peter, and he probably recorded many of the things that he heard the apostle pre Peter preach. Think about it. John has a gospel. Matthew has a gospel. Peter doesn't have a gospel, right? Isn't that kind of weird? Considering his status in the early church, he has First and Second Peter. But yet, what we have here is most likely things passed down to John Mark from Peter himself. Uh, and I think this is of particular interest because wasn't Peter also unfaithful to the Lord? Wasn't it Peter that denied Jesus three times before the, before the, uh, the cock crowed twice? See, I wonder if that didn't have an impact on how Peter looked at this young man, John Mark. I wonder as Peter remembered him being restored by the Lord three times, by the way, if it didn't impact how he was able to look at other people who needed to be restored. See, when you've been restored, doesn't it impact the way that you treat others? When you've been forgiven much, doesn't it impact how you forgive others as well? Something I find there that's very interesting in that relationship between those two. Uh, Peter will actually call him a son. Whether Peter led him to the Lord, we don't know. Good chance that he may have. Now the question though that, so it is pretty unanimous that, that Peter impacted this letter that we have before us. What's not unanimous though is, was Peter still alive when John Mark wrote the letter? Um, and therefore, uh, the question becomes, when and where did he write it? We know that he wrote it from Rome, or at least Italy. The non-consensus, again, is Peter's rule. Many church fathers believe that Peter was indeed alive, and in fact, he fed John Mark much of this information, and that he had a direct say in what was written. 
Other people believe that he didn't have much of a say in what was written, and John Mark merely took what was already written of Peter's uh, preaching, and that he would then record it. Uh, when did it take place? Uh, most scholars believe between the late 50s and early 70s. Now, we know that Peter probably died around 80, 67, or 68. Um, so depending on whether it was written after Peter's death or before Peter's death. If, if this kind of thing interests you, I don't like to spend a whole lot of time on time frames. There's a lot, there's, you can read thousands of pages on when was this gospel written. For the first 19 centuries of the church, scholars thought that Matthew was the first written gospel. Uh, the last century now, most scholars believe Mark is the oldest of all of them. Uh, depending on who you read, there's going to be different interpretations. If that thing interests you, there's a whole synoptic gospel uh, question of how Mark influenced the other gospels and was there a Q gospel and all these other things. Uh, if that stuff interests you, there's all kinds of resources out there for you to enjoy. Let's just keep it real simple. John Mark wrote it from Italy. Probably my guess is around the late 50s, early 60s, uh, no later than the set early 70s. And he's writing to Roman Gentile Christians. There's only several Old Testament references, unlike Matthew's gospel. Matthew is full of the Old Testament because he's primarily writing to Jewish believers to show that Jesus is the coming king, the Messiah, coming in David's throne. But Mark is writing to Gentiles. Even Aramaic words are explained along with Jewish customs. And he, he, he writes in a way, I think, that speaks to average Americans because he keeps things direct and to the point. He will write the word immediately, almost 40, or over 40 times in this gospel. It's action-packed. He will go into one situation, and then he will take a break from that, and he'll go into a next situation, and then he'll go back to the first situation, sort of like cinematography today, like you're watching a movie. Uh, it's sort of like a movie where he just, he's concerned about what Jesus does. He keeps the gospel account moving from place to place, event to event. He's more concerned about what Jesus does than what Jesus says many times. Now, again, the question, though, that we have to ask is, what is his message? What is the message that Mark wants us to get from this gospel account? Most likely, this letter was read aloud to the congregation, uh, and so it would not have been something that most people that would have received it could read in his day. There were not a lot of people who could read back then. Uh, compared to today, literacy rates were very low. And so it was written to be spoken. Uh, and I would encourage you, if you enjoy listening to the Word of God on your phone, you can download the Bible app and you can actually listen to someone speaking the Word of God. And Mark's gospel is very dynamic. So what is his message? What does he want us to get at? I think the answer is in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so this letter, this account of the gospel is about Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God. Notice he doesn't even call him the servant of God. You know, we focus on Jesus as servant in Mark's gospel, and yet he refers to him here as the Son of God, as he's distinct from all others. Remember, authority is a key piece in this account. It's one thing to be just a servant, but it's another thing to have authority and use that authority to serve others. And how does he serve others? Well, it says here, it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does he serve us? How does Jesus Christ serve us? Well, he gives of his life as a ransom for many. He takes the form of a man and he becomes a bondservant to the point of death, even the death of the cross we just learned in Philippians. 
And that is the gospel that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, took on our sin so that God could forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there's just a couple quick thoughts I want to point out there to you as we close this morning. Number one, next week we're going to dig into the text itself. I just wanted to give us that background information to help us have that view as we approach the text. I would encourage you to do this. I would encourage you to read through the entire Gospel of Mark in one sitting. You know, it's one thing to just study it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but sometimes when you go slow, you miss the big picture of it. Read through the entire gospel account in one sitting. And not just Mark. Do that with different books of the Bible. You'll be amazed at what you get from those sittings. Um, so, you know, put aside two hours if you can and feast on the word of God. Number two, I pray that as we look at this gospel account through Mark, that we will grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Isn't that why we're here this morning? We want to grow to know Jesus, and we want to grow to know him in truth. I don't want to just know what people say about him. I want to know him. And how do we find out about him? Well, we look in the pages of Scripture that's recorded for us of who Jesus Christ is. And so we're going to see Jesus Christ in all of his fullness before our eyes as we study this gospel account. Number three, if you are a John Mark this morning, maybe you feel like you failed the Lord. And you feel like, maybe God can't use me anymore. I, I've blown it. Or maybe you feel like, you know, he, he doesn't love me. How can he love someone like me? Understand his mission. His mission was to pay a ransom for us. And a ransom was given to release people from slavery. And if you are in slavery in this day, there's a good chance perhaps you mismanage things in your life. And therefore, you had to go into slavery to try to pay back that which you have earned, so to speak. The point is, he paid our ransom for us. Not that we deserve it, right? But he willingly did it for us. He paid the price so that you could be free, so that you could be called a child of God. And it's his heart to restore. We see that all throughout the Bible. And finally, I'll, I'll leave you with this. In order to be a servant, isn't it true that there needs to be humility? You think there needs to be humility to be a servant? I do. I don't think you can have one without the other necessarily. There, there's two forms of humility. There is the humility that the Son of God took upon himself in becoming man and serving us, right? What did Jesus do when all authority had been given to him? We said this earlier. He girded himself. He, he, he became a slave. He did a menial work of a slave that John the Baptist will say, John wasn't even worthy to loosen uh, his, Jesus' sandal straps. And yet Jesus does that work to his disciples. He humbles himself and he serves others. That's one side of humility. You know, it's humbling to serve other people. And in this church, since I've been here the last several months, I've learned this church has a lot of servants. There's a lot of people in this church with servant hearts. It's been such a blessing to our family. That's one side of humility. But there's another side of humility, and that is being served. Remember when Peter goes before Jesus as he's washing the disciples' feet? What does Peter do? No, Lord, you, you can't wash my feet, right? Why? 
because Peter understood who Jesus is. He understood the authority that Jesus possesses. It should be Peter washing Jesus' feet, and yet that Jesus is washing Peter's feet. See, it's one side of humility to serve others, but especially for servants, sometimes it's hard to let other people serve us. I know folks, man, they will serve anyone, but when you try to serve them, no, <laughs> let me pay you back for what you've done for me. The question I think we all have to ask is, number one, who is Jesus Christ? But here's number two. Will you let Jesus serve you? Because it takes humility to let him wash you and cleanse you. You realize the Bible says you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And it takes humility to say, I need to be cleansed in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. His desire is to wash you and to cleanse you from all sin. That's the good news. That's this glad tidings that Mark tells us about, that this is the beginning that God sends forth John the Baptist that we sang about and we're going to look at next week. Are you willing to let the Savior, the God of the universe, cleanse you and wash you? Are you humble enough to allow him to do so? I pray that you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this precious book that's written for us. Thank you that it reveals the gospel. It reveals your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask you as we enter into 2020, a year that I, I didn't know that we'd ever even make it this far, but Lord, would you reveal your heart to us as we study your word? Would you reveal Jesus Christ to our own hearts, Lord? Lord, if our hearts have strayed from you, if we're going through the motions, if we're lukewarm in this thing, I pray that you'd revive our hearts, Lord, through the study of your word. I ask that you, your spirit would do a fresh and a new work, Lord, for revival that you'd start in my own heart. Lord, how I long to know you, how I long to walk with you. Lord, we want that first love that we had for you when everything was new when the gospel was so precious, when we understood that our sins were forgiven and cleansed, and all we had was you. Father, would you forgive us of our sin, of getting distracted in the things of this world, of focusing on things that profit not. And would you divert our attention to your Son who is eternal and eternally glorified, to whom all things are going, and they're subject to him, Lord. Lord, this morning we subject our own hearts to you. We realize, Father, it's a choice that you give us this morning. We can choose to submit to the authority of your son. And Lord, this morning we choose to crown him Lord of all lords, King of all kings, because that's who he is. Lord, we bow the, our, the knees of our heart before you this morning, our minds before you. And we ask that you would do something new in this new year, something fresh. Give us that first love. Give us more, Lord. You always save the best for last, you tell us. And so we're trusting in you, in Jesus' name. Amen.